0: Well, let's pray, and we're going to get into this word, and uh, yeah, we're here. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to teach your word, and thank you for giving us direction, and thank you for these that are here and those that are joining us online and those that will come along later, and uh, I just pray that you'll open your word. I trust that you will. I pray that each of us will be willing to open our hearts to what your word has to say to us, and I pray that I will say nothing that will get in the way of that, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm gonna go up to um, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14. This is just three verses away from chapter three. And uh, we're actually gonna jump in uh, at verse five, but before we do that, I'm gonna make some comments about the previous passage. So I want you to kind of get the perspective here, right? So, the Apostle Paul says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. So, that's great. That word folly is moria. We get our word moron from that. You hear that word used thrown around a lot today? You're a moron, right? It's exactly what Jesus was saying uh, when he said, you know, when you say to someone raka, right? Which is empty head. Uh, then you're liable to judgment. And yet people don't care, even Christians. Uh, So I made a comment. Um, There is a fellow that is running against Abbott, Governor Abbott. So I understand people that are on the other side of the political aisle that oppose Governor Abbott. But there are people who think virtually the same who are supporting this fellow named Huffines. who well, I'm assuming this is the same guy that owns the car dealerships, who was a state senator for a while, and all he has to say are nasty things about the governor. And so I followed him for a short while until he, in the middle of the pandemic, he just started saying all these nasty things about the governor. And I was like, you know what? You just don't get it. The Democrats sweep into Congress, and they're able to you know, promote huge legislation immediately. The de- the Republicans were in power for two years. They had both houses and they had the presidency and they accomplished nothing because they don't get along, right? So, you know, I just posted on this advertisement that came out of my site, you're dividing the electorate all you're going to do is give a Democrat the opportunity to gain traction in the fall. Oh my goodness, you would have assumed I was the devil's spawn from some of these people, right? So, you know, typically you hear me opposing leftists. Um, This has nothing to do with Democrat, Republican. This just has to do with uh, ideology and the tendency of leftists to be Marxists, Um, you would, be surprised or maybe not be surprised that there are policies that I oppose, and I won't get into that here, uh, that Republicans promote. But nonetheless, um, yeah, it doesn't matter if it's people who are on the left side or the right side of the aisle ideologically, they're temperamentally the same. They don't deal in arguments. It's not a matter of having a discussion. It is ad hominem attacks. Yeah. You're a moron. You're a fool. You don't get it. You're not part of the enlightened group like I am. So translation, you found out that I'm not part of your tribe. And so you can't agree with anything that I say. In spite of the fact that some of these promoters of this Huffines fella would probably agree with 80% of what I would say. But heaven forbid that I would support Governor Abbott because I'm a moron right? Well, that's what this word is, right? Um, those, those are political issues, right? Now, some of those political issues have significance for believers, um, but this is about the gospel. And the Apostle Paul says, the person that's in the natural that is tied into this world doesn't get it at all everything you're saying when you're speaking about the bible and spiritual things just sounds like foolishness to them they're the ones that are going to call you a moron they're not even able to understand it it's not a matter of they won't they can't you have to be born again to even have an ability to perceive spiritual things right he says they're not able to understand because these things are spiritually discerned. Verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. So this is the idea of discernment, decision-making. It's what you do every day. This is not the same way of using the word judged as Jesus was using it when he said, do not judge or you'll be judged. That is seeking to find fault in someone. That's seeking to stand over someone. You make determinations every single day about right and wrong. That's judgment. That's discernment. That's uh, making determinations about life. Okay? You have to do that. And when you're dealing with other people, you have to make determinations about whether or not you're going to have a relationship with them based on how they act and how they talk. If people don't respect you, why have a relationship with them? You can still pray for them. You can give them an opportunity to come back at some, but if they're gonna disrespect you, don't have a relationship with them. You don't need to deal with that. It's not even necessary, right? Now, that doesn't mean I cut them off, that I hate them, that I don't wanna have a relationship at all. It means that in their current situation, the way that they're treating me, I am not going to enter into that kind of a discussion. So. Going back to this little post that I did on Huffines, I haven't responded to any of these people. In fact, I wasn't even going to read the responses, you know, because then I'm going to be tempted to make arguments. And I've discovered that on Facebook, that just doesn't work. So, yeah, I'm not doing that when it concerns the gospel and when it concerns uh, representing Jesus and you know, making a a healthy, clear apologetic for the gospel, then I'll do that. But I'm not gonna deal with all that other stuff. So what we need to realize is that someone who doesn't have a spiritual rebirth, they haven't confessed Jesus as Lord, they're not gonna get it. And you can argue with them and argue with them and it's still not going to convince them because they've landed on an ideological plane that prevents them from any sort of willingness to enter into any kind of even objectivity. Uh, verse 15 of chapter two, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? The answer is nobody, but we have the mind of Christ. So because we have the Holy Spirit, which you know I taught on extensively Sunday, or at least I uh, used Romans, Romans, Acts chapter two to teach on extensively Sunday, um, we have access. We can tap into the mind of Christ. Now we get to chapter three, which we started on last week. But I brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh as infants. Now remember that's in the past tense. He's talking about when he first came to them, when they were fleshy, right? Uh, when they were of the natural. He said, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And then he transitions into the now. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. And remember he uses a different word there that doesn't mean that they are isolated to the flesh, but that they've chosen to uh, characterize themselves that way. And I would say the majority of people who go to church are right there. They're still of the flesh. He says, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Now, I like that. He says, only in a human way. Because when we have the Spirit, we are given access to the mind of Christ, and we have the ability to respond in a divine way, if you will, in a spiritual way, in a way that comes from God's inspiration. Verse 4, for when one says, I follow Paul and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Let's pause for a second. I didn't talk about Apollos last week. So Paul, we know, uh, the apostle who was called by Jesus. Apollos is actually a Jew from Alexandria, which is in Egypt, but this was a center of philosophy and specifically um, the... the uh, cross between uh, Jewish and Greek thinking in Alexandria. So it was called Alexandria because of Alexander the Great. And um, uh, there was a great library there at one point before it all burned to the ground. And uh, it was a, a center of learning in the ancient world that was widely respected. And so Apollos was from there. And even before he had Fully received Jesus, or perhaps even received the Holy Spirit, he still had this very, very um, insightful intellectual understanding of the gospel. And so we first encounter um, Apollos in Ephesus. Now you'll find this in uh, Acts chapter 18, I believe it's verse 24. And he comes to Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey today. Um, Now, Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth, but he spent three years in Ephesus. But it took him a long time to get there. He didn't get to Ephesus until the third missionary journey. So he leaves Corinth. He goes through Ephesus, and he sees an open door there, but he's not ready yet. So he goes all the way back down to Antioch for a short period of time. Then he starts going back up through all the churches in Galatia and the previous churches that he started until he makes his way back to what is today Turkey, Asia Minor, and then starts ministering in Ephesus. But prior to Paul coming to Ephesus, um, uh, two of Paul's companions were there, um, and they encountered Apollos. And uh, they heard him speak and it says they pulled him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. So it clearly says in Acts chapter 18 that Apollos knew only the baptism of John. So he hadn't even been baptized in the name of Jesus yet, which means in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But he still believed that Jesus was the Messiah. John baptized those who were willing to repent and all of those, uh, according to Mark chapter seven, who were baptized by John were willing to receive the way of righteousness, were willing to receive Jesus. Those who were not were unwilling to receive Jesus, right? So the companions of Paul, of whom I speak, are uh, Aquila and Priscilla. They were also tent makers. And uh, they had been ejected from Rome uh, during a time when the Jews were thrown out of Rome. And uh, they had come down to Corinth. Paul had encountered them in Corinth. And then they had gone to Ephesus. They, that is Aquila and Priscilla, met Apollos. They gave him a more accurate understanding of the gospel. Now, honestly, it doesn't tell us You know, was Apollos baptized in the name of Jesus? Uh, Did he receive the Holy Spirit? I mean, we would assume that he did, but it doesn't say that explicitly. But he is a very, very powerful apologist for the gospel. And so while Paul is back in Antioch, Apollos goes to Corinth, right? And so he's a teacher there for a while. So he continues to support the work. So you see how there are these two giant intellects who are incredibly, um, their background prepares them to be able to speak the truth and speak the scripture, who have gone to Corinth and who have made a powerful impression on the people. People have a tendency to be loyal to leaders. And Paul and Apollos were not at odds with each other. They weren't competing with each other for anything. But nonetheless, these people were using Paul and Apollos as a way of dividing from one another. That was where they were getting their identity. Well, we see a lot of this identity loyalty going on today. In fact, political groups use that to gain traction, right? You know, I follow this particular uh, party um, or this particular ideology uh, and... uh, You know, we have these tribal loyalties that cause us to divide from one another when we shouldn't be dividing from one another if we're believers. And this is a case that I've made with Christians because Christians are very divided today. And it's because they're identifying out into the culture rather than identifying with the scripture and identifying with Christ. So you have those that are very strongly identifying with critical social justice. And they may be doing it for the best of reasons, but it's causing them to be divided from others who see the fault, the philosophical, ideological fault in critical social justice, even though they see that the intent of many people who are following it is good. And sadly, this is causing a divide even among so-called evangelicals, that is those who purportedly receive uh, the gospel, right? Verse five, the apostle Paul says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted. So Paul planted the church there. Apollos watered. So then Apollos comes along and he waters the seed that Paul has planted. But God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So here's these two illustrations that he's going to use. He just talked about planting. So that's the field. And then he says, you're God's building. So now he's going to shift for the rest of the chapter and talk about uh, God's people as his temple. According to the grace given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Now he's not talking about Apollos here. He's talking about other teachers that came in later, right? Let each one take care how he builds upon it for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Christ is the foundation, not some ideology, not some political philosophy, not some political party. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, will be shown, will be proven, for the day will disclose it. What is the day? This is the day of the Lord or the day of judgment because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that, has, uh, that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself be, will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So this is the key uh, passage in this chapter. Verse 18, Let no one deceive himself. If If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, quote, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Verse 21, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, this is Peter, and earlier we saw in chapter one that people were also dividing by this uh, loyalty to Peter. Or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Okay? All right. So now let's go, and I'll jump into my notes here. Um, All right. Let's go back. Um, this is commentary on verses one through four. When I talked about the difference between the person that is fleshy versus the person that is fleshly, the person that is um, bound to the flesh and in the natural versus the person that simply appeals to the flesh and and sets their mind to the flesh. The Apostle Paul said in verse two, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. So here is commentary that I had previously written in my notes that I just wanna uh, relate to you. We who belong to Christ are not comprised of flesh alone. Indeed, most of those listening are likely believers and thus in the spirit. Now this is not a feeling, okay? If you have called on Christ to be Lord, then you have access to the Holy Spirit. How much the Holy Spirit controls you, or you allow him to control you, is the determining factor as to whether you are filled with the Spirit. So the Spirit of God dwells in us, and if he doesn't, then we don't belong to Christ. That's Romans 8, 9. As the most recent NIV translate, this is uh, the NIV uh, 2011 version, You have. This is Romans 8, 9 in the 2011 NIV. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. It's interesting it uses that. But are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So we're in that realm. We're in that domain of the spirit. Now, if you're not, then you don't belong to Jesus. You don't have the spirit. You're not saved. You need to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. So you gotta take a look at yourself. Is your life characterized by jealousy and strife like the Corinthians or with the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are you jealous of the neighbor or the coworker instead of loving them? Are you complaining about how unfair it is that others have what you lack? Striving with your family and or your faith family, that's the church, competing, angry, argumentative, dividing over sports, politics, brand loyalty, group identity. Jesus is not a Republican or a Democrat, a conservative or a liberal, white, black, Latino, or Asian. Christ is not a Southern Baptist, a Catholic, an Episcopalian, a Church of Christ, a progressive, a Pentecostal, a Presbyterian, a Methodist, Arminian, or Calvinist. God is not even a Messianic Jew or a non-denominational Christian. It's not wrong to have cultural differences or denominational distinctives, or to hold on to family loyalty. It is wrong to think and to assert that you and your group, nation or ethnicity, are the chosen ones who have everything right, or that another group is inevitably wrong. It is wrong to divide Jesus. This is fleshly, carnal, and worldly. Now, I rarely uh, quote the Message uh, Bible because it is a paraphrase. The message is not a translation, it is a paraphrase. So it's like a commentary. So if you read the message, don't read it like it's the Word of God. Read it like it's a commentary on the Word of God. The message is a paraphrase by one person, Eugene Peterson. Very smart guy, I think inspired in many respects, but stop reading the message like it's a translation. The message is not a translation. Is the message a translation? no it is not right it's like the uh we have the new living translation that is a translation but it's based upon the living bible which is an older version same idea of the message the living bible uh, i forgot the gentleman's name but it was a paraphrase by one man who wanted the bible to be understandable to his children So literally, on the train, back and forth to work, he paraphrased the entire Bible. He read it and said, how would you say that today? What would be the best way to communicate? But see, he's not a scholar. He's not translating it. He's trying to say, well, how would I say that? So that's like me reading the the scripture and saying, well, how would I say, the difference is I have some uh, training in Greek and Hebrew, the guy that translated, or pardon me, translated, no, paraphrased the Living Bible did not. Now, Eugene Peterson did have training in Greek and Hebrew, and that's why his paraphrase is, I think, uh, more, uh, uh, I guess, accurate, we would say, um, more reliable, okay? But if you read the message next to any translation, you're going to go, Huh? because it's not saying the same thing. So all that said, I read commentaries. I quote commentaries in here. I'm going to quote a passage from the message. Um, This is um, the, uh, the passage in Galatians chapter five that talks about the works of the flesh, okay? It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time, repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes, divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival. Wow, that's today. Uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parities of community. I could go on. I think that he interpreted the deeds of the flesh very, very well there. Okay. So we're called to be spiritual, to be unified in thought and intent. Remember, we have the mind of Christ. That's what the last verse in chapter two said, we're called to be like Jesus. That's Romans eight twenty nine, right? Eight twenty eight. Um, uh, All things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he also, um, those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's God's goal for you for me, to be like Jesus. We're called to be like Jesus. And that means to be selfless like Jesus was, right? Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he uh, was in the form of God, did not regard, regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, And being found in the likeness of men and being found in the image of a man he humbled himself to the point of death even death on the cross that's jesus that's what we're supposed to be like because that whole passage the so-called kenotic passage greek kenosis means emptying the self-emptying passage is there because the apostle paul said have the same attitude have the same mind in our culture We're taught to love ourselves and have self-esteem. What does esteem mean? It means you raise yourself up. I need to have a sense of elevated self. That's incorrect. That's not scripture. That's not Christianity. I elevate Christ. I humble myself. And I allow him to raise me up at the proper time. That's a big difference than what we see today. So, we're called to be holy as God is uh, holy. Uh, that's found in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, but it's quoting Leviticus. God says you are, you are holy because I am holy to his people. We're called to love our neighbor as ourselves and to love one another as Jesus loves us. And above all, we're called to love God with all we are. Right? So Jesus said that's the greatest commandment. What then is Apollos, what is Paul, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So what's the significance of Christian leaders? Paul, Apollos, Cephas. A leader is a follower of Jesus, and is not to gather an independent following. We're not to have this. So you have a a large group of people today that will call themselves Calvinists. What does that mean? They follow John Calvin, the reformer from the 16th century. That's not biblical. I'm sorry, that's just not biblical. So um, Methodists follow John Wesley actually, John Wesley, uh, the 17th century revivalist. And actually, many Methodists today would be cause for great consternation for John Wesley when it regards what they've chosen to embrace. Um, These men were godly men. Wesley didn't even want to start a denomination. He had people, he saw in the Church of England uh, this, this callousness, this uh, lack of discipline, and so he started these groups, and these groups would meet on Sunday afternoons. Well, gradually that became groups that formed their own denomination, and and you have Methodism. Um, but that's not the direction that Christ would take us, right? Uh, the Apollo, the Apostle Paul says it best in this very letter be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So that goes all the way to chapter 11, verse one. So that doesn't mean that you don't follow a leader's uh, direction as long as they're following Jesus. But your leader is Christ. Your teacher is the Holy Spirit. Your teacher is Christ. You're only getting that through a leader who is also seeking to follow Christ. And then in verse five of the chapter under consideration, Christian leaders are defined the way Jesus defined us as servants. What did he just say? Verse five, what is Paul, excuse me, what is Apollos, what is Paul? Servants. Who are we serving? Who am I serving? Well, I'm serving you, but fundamentally, and first of all, I'm serving Christ, right? Um, In verse five, that's what we find. And then Jesus defined us as servants also. Um, this is Matthew twenty twenty five 25-28. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There's the theme for that. The Son of Man. This is the Messiah. This is the unique son of God. And he did not come to be served, but to serve and then to give his life as a ransom for many. He's our model. That's who we follow, right? So we're not seeking to be leaders that others follow. And you see a lot of that. Again, I've said this before. I think this is why social media is so popular. People want to gain followers. Even your so-called friends, are just people that follow you and they give you one of these and then we make a post or put a picture up there and we're quickly looking to see you know who responded and you know there are people that just like in high school that are popular and everybody follows them around facebook is just high school extended that's what it is right uh Commentator Leon Morris says this: "Servants translates diaconoi. This is where we get our term deacon, by the way. A term which originally meant a table waiter. It came to be used of lowly service generally, and in New Testament, it is often used of the service that any Christian should render to God. In time, it was applied to the one. It was applied to one of the regular orders of the ministry, the deacon." but this is not an example of that use. The term stresses the lowly character of preachers who would set servants, excuse me, who would set servants on pedestals. And that's rhetorical, nobody would. The real work is done by God. Paul and Apollos are no no more than instruments through whom he does his work. These ministers could work only as the Lord gave to them. So a Christian leader exists to serve Christ by making disciples. We introduce people to Christ by preaching the gospel and then baptize them. And then we teach students of Jesus or I like uh, what Dallas Willard called disciples. He called them apprentices. Think of that, what's an apprentice? Somebody who is under a skilled person to learn their trade. We're apprentices of Jesus to become like him. That's what Jesus said, right? He said this: the disciple, is there to become like his master. So that's what we're here to do. There's a list of offices in Ephesians 4, 1, uh, excuse me, 11 through 12, and the apostle Paul teaches that these leaders are in place to edify and equip God's people to serve. Here it is, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So I'm here to equip you and serve as Christ did. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Too often, people who come to church wish to be entitled rather than equipped. Ooh, ouch. I come to feel better about myself. I come to have a sense of entitlement reinforced. And so when you step on people's toes by giving admonition, they don't want to be there, right? The self-centered want to feel good about their present lives instead of being challenged and enabled to live better lives. It's not about your best life now. It's about living your life with Jesus. We're reborn in the image of Christ. We're to live as Jesus did. Um, here's uh, Here's the ESV translation that, I quoted this just a moment ago from memory and I assure you it wasn't ESV because I memorized it a long time ago, which was before ESV came out. ESV came out about the same year that the new NIV came out. Um, This is Philippians 2, 4 through 7 in ESV. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So, the next thing the Apostle Paul does is he uses this illustration from farming. He says that he planted and Apollos watered. So Paul planted the initial seed, which is the preaching of the gospel, and then Paul came along and watered that seed. So let's think about this. Uh, A couple of weeks ago I told you, or I related to you, uh, this idea that the preaching of the gospel is called the kerygma. And then the application of that to everyday life is called the didache. So the Apostle Paul came in and he presented the kerygma, the essential gospel. Now presumably, he started teaching them as well. Apollos came along and brought uh, this, uh, this uh, excuse me didache in all likelihood. Um, he waters the seed then with that didache by teaching these new disciples how to defend their faith. And we've done that in here before. I've you know, i taught uh, apologetics in here using William Lane Craig's book, uh, A Reasonable Faith, and then also using his book for churches called On Guard. I can recommend both of them. Um, in Greek, the same word is translated in verse two. I gave you to drink uh, milk. And he's used in a different way and and translated Apollos watered. So whether it's for the beginner or the more advanced disciple, there is a process of teaching that is ongoing, much like watering a plant or feeding a baby. Watering a plant or feeding a baby. The baby's already come to birth. The baby is out in the real world. Now you've got to feed the baby. The seeds have been planted in the field. Now the seeds need to be watered. That's what has to happen all the time. Then ESV translates verse six, but God gave the growth. Babies just grow, right? You gotta feed them, you gotta change them, but they're just gonna grow and they're gonna keep growing and you can't stop that. There's an inexorable process that begins at the fertilization of the ova. And unless something tragic happens, that results in a human adult. It just happens, right? You plant a seed. If you water the seed, then there's this inexorable process that happens so that whatever that seed is on the inside becomes a mature plant. And then eventually produces whatever fruit or flower that it is intended to produce. Um, So a possible meaning here is that these people had stopped growing and I suspect that that is the case for many Christians uh, in this church and in other churches. You've gotten to a point and then you've just plateaued. You're not growing anymore. You're not going anywhere. Only God can supply growth, but we have to respond. And as a leader, I can point you and I can point myself in the right direction and hopefully provide some motivation, but we've got to cooperate, don't we? We have to be willing. So you're here. You're, you're presumably here to cooperate with that growth process, right? Um, my responsibility is to share, and your response, that's your responsibility. Your response is not my responsibility. Your response is your responsibility. Now, I want you to think about this. When you share with someone, a family member, a friend, a coworker their response is not your responsibility. It's just your responsibility to share, right? And to use the gifts that God has given you to do that, Um, to use the experience that you have, the education that you have to do that. You gotta have a willingness that comes from opening your heart to the truth. Jesus told a story to teach this concept and it's found in the Synoptic Gospels. It's found in all three Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, which one did I write, uh, did I use here? This is from Matthew. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seeds. As he scattered them across his field, some seeds fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate them. Other seeds fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but the plants soon wilted under the hot sun, and since they did not have deep roots, they died. Other seeds fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants. Still other seeds fell on fertile soil, and they produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even a 100 times as much as had been planted. Anyone with ears to hear should understand, should, excuse me, should listen and understand. Well, what does that mean? Well, here's jesus this is one of the the few parables that jesus fully interpreted now listen to the explanation of the parable about the farmer planting the seeds the seed that fell on the footpath represents those that hear the message about the kingdom and don't understand it then the evil one comes and snatches away the seed that was planted in their in their hearts so i taught teenagers for many years and they would come to my groups on wednesday and they were there because other teenagers were there. And they would sit around on the floor, whether at the rock or at someone's house, and chit chat with each other and not pay a bit of attention. Today, they'd be on their phones, but there were no phones back then, right? In fact, I you know, had to get rather intense with some of these teenagers. Uh, one of my former youth leaders posted a picture of a group that met at his house. And I hadn't thought about some of those teens in years and years and years. But there were two girls that were there. And I remember them. And they invited so many friends. So for all intents and purposes, it looked like, wow, they're really being evangelistic. Now, early on, when those two girls started coming, they were interested in the gospel. But that quickly faded. And so pretty soon, I can remember the night that I really called them all on the carpet. It was the last night they ever attended anything. I am teaching at The Rock and they are sitting with their friends in a circle, talking to each other, not paying any attention to me at all. So I said, if this is what you're here to do, don't come. I don't need you here you're not getting anything out of this so they took the hint and they didn't come back and that's sad but that's the seed that falls on the path right satan uses a myriad of distractions and today it's these you know (laughs) appropriately there was some sort of a a sound just now i don't know if it's from my computer or you know whatever it is bring 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 you need to pay attention, all of these announcements and, you know, we, we just, the notification, 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 and what is it? It's a bunch of junk that we don't even need to hear about. You gotta sort through all of this stuff because every time you load a new app, you've got a new, and it is distracting us. But you don't have to pay attention. You can go to notifications in your phone and turn them all off, right? You can turn your phone off when you come to church. I mean, we can choose to pay attention. So then there are the next group of people. Verse 20, the seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. And I've seen this through years of youth ministry in particular, you know, this uh, emotional response, right, could be tears, it could be, you know, enthusiasm or whatever it is, but if it's just that, if it's just an emotional response, and there's no real change, then this is what he says in verse 21. Since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They will fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. So this is feelings over faith, right? I confuse feelings with faith. But when different variables come in and challenge that, then I give up, right? This intensity verse 22 the seed that fell among the thorns represent those who hear hear god's word but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth so no fruit is produced so the seed that falls in the rocky soil is feelings over faith there's really there's no real faith the seed that falls among the weeds is an attempt at faith but without repentance. I'm not willing to get out of that that those weeds, that patch of weeds, right? I still want to have the same friends around. I haven't used this illustration in many, many years, but it still sticks in my mind. I remember uh when I was, I don't know, I might have been 19, 18, 19, maybe 20 at the most. And uh You know, I would talk to people about Jesus all the time and um, I was at a very evangelistic church. That's why I came to faith in Christ. And I remember there was a young man that was there and it seems to me he was invited by someone else. And uh, I witnessed to him, I shared the gospel with him, I prayed with him, prayed to receive Christ with him. And then I even gave him a ride home. We stopped at his house and there were all of his relatives out in the front and they were ready to have a big party somebody was bringing like a big old 12 pack of beer in and you know, long story short, he responded to the gospel, but he never came back. This is probably the majority of the people that came through House of Judgment. They were moved emotionally by what they saw, but we would call them and invite them to church and so forth, they they weren't willing to change. You know, we want salvation. Right? It's that old blues song. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. (laughs) You know, nobody wants to repent. Nobody wants to change. Um, That's the seed that fell among the thorns. Verse 23 The seed that fell on good soil represents those who truly hear and understand God's word and produce a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as has been planted. So the soil is your heart. And the scripture says, above all else, guard your heart, for from it are the is the wellspring of life, right? So life, the plant grows out of the soil. So you decide what you believe and you must live with the consequences of your faith or your unbelief. And I see this all the time. I see this with people that come to this church regularly. Are you paying attention to the scripture at all? Because you're posting an ideology that is diametrically opposed to scripture. You're making statements that are statements that that are opposed to Christ and opposed to scripture. What are we doing here? Why are we here, right? So um, we need to allow the word of God, that seed to get into our heart and to grow and to produce fruit. So that's the apostle Paul. He said, the gospel is the seed of truth. Your heart is the soil. If the soil is hard, if the soil is rocky, if the soil is infested with weeds, then there's gonna be there's gonna be no fruit, right? So, you have to submit yourself to the plow, right? Um, soil can be hard, and then the plow has to go into the soil and turn it over, so that the seed will go in. You've got to go in and do the work of saying, you know what? There's rocks here. I need to get these out, okay? There's weeds here. I need to pull these up. It's the process of repentance. Now next he uses a uh, the example from the world of construction. The apostle Paul sees himself as a master builder who's building a temple. And this temple is not made of bricks and mortar, but is comprised of human souls. And we could say that humans, are the bricks and the Holy Spirit is the mortar that cements them together. Do you not know that, I'm skipping down to verses 15 and 16, we're not gonna have time to skip back up today uh, to verses uh, nine through 14, uh, 10 through 14, but we'll do that next week. Do you not know that you are God's temple? Stop. Now later, He says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But he says, do you not know that you are God's temple? Well, if we were reading King James, it would be ye. Well, you're a southerner, aren't you? Do you not know that y'all are God's temple? Now you understand. It is second person plural. That's just left the English language. But Southerners are like, whatever. We all know. Y'all know. Do you not know? Do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in y'all? It's plural each time. Right? Or it could be translated: dwells among y'all. Remember what I said? The spirit is the mortar that brings the bricks together. So later, he does make the point that you individually, you personally, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But he says, y'all, that's us, that's you, if you're a believer, are bricks in this temple of God. And the Holy Spirit dwells among us and seeks to bring us together in that temple. Now, here's the warning in verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Be careful when you come up against the church. Right? Churches are imperfect because they're filled with imperfect people. But God protects his church. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. So... We who believe in Christ are God's temple. The Jewish temple was torn down by the Roman general Titus in AD 70. Now, at the writing of 1 Corinthians, it was still standing. Uh, 1 Corinthians was written in the 50s AD. The temple, as I just indicated, was destroyed in AD 70. I've come to believe that the Jewish religious leaders brought this upon themselves when they rejected the gospel culminating in ejecting the Apostle Paul from the temple when he had come to Jerusalem to give the poor fellow Jews, his poor fellow Jews, excuse me, a financial offering. So we're gonna see in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians that the Apostle Paul is trying to raise money for the poor Jews. There's a famine, famine in Israel. And so he's concerned about his fellow Jews. And so he collects this money from these wealthy Gentiles and Corinth was a commercial center. He never took any money from himself for there, but he sought to collect money for them. And he brought that back to Jerusalem. And then James, who is the half brother of Jesus and the pastor of the Jerusalem church, uh, puts the apostle Paul up to something. He says, hey, listen, there are all of these Jews here and they all believe and they think that you are evil, that you're teaching people not to obey Uh, the law of Moses. So here's what you're gonna do to alleviate their concerns. You're gonna go into the temple. There's a couple of men here that are coming out of a vow. This is presumably a Nazarite vow. And you're gonna take this money and you're gonna go and you're gonna pay uh, for uh, what needs to be paid for in the offering for this vow to end and all this other stuff. Long story short, there are a group of rabble-rousers in the temple that accused Paul of everything that James said they were accusing him of, of being an antinomian, someone who's against the law. They accused him of bringing a Greek into the temple. And you don't talk about racists. They were racist. And um, so basically they they tried to tear him apart, right? Acts 21:30. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. I have come to see that that was the end of the temple. I personally do not believe that the temple will be rebuilt. We are the temple. There is not going to be a brick-and-mortar temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. Now, God can have whatever plans he wants. can prove me wrong, but I don't think that that is going to be the case. I don't think that's God's plan they shut Paul out. They shut the gospel out. They shut their Messiah out. That was the end. So the first church building was not built until the third century A.D. in a city called Dura Europa. Today cathedrals across Europe are little more than museums. They're empty of true worshipers. People go to see these these beautiful cathedrals, but there's nobody there worshipping. Right? Look around. However, a beautiful temple continues to be built all over the world. Believers in Jesus are the building blocks of that temple. And Paul speaks of building his new temple. That's us here. That's you there. That's those that will be here on Sunday and in a thousand or a million other Bible-believing churches all over the world. Amen? We are that temple. All right. So that's all I've got for the evening. And thank you for being a part of this evening. And I appreciate